Hi, Laura. Hi, everyone. Thank you for asking me to speak. My name is Nicole. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I have my sober date is October 21st, 2019. I have a sponsor. She has a sponsor. We have a nice lineage of sponsor and sponsees. Um, I'll briefly go over what it was like um, and then what happened and what it's like now. Um, I related a lot to that reading of just I tried a lot of different ways to avoid admitting my alcoholism but at this point I'm I'm relieved and grateful to be an alcoholic in recovery. Um I started drinking alcoholically when I was 13 and it was just right away blackouts um whatever drug was on the table um and that just went on my drinking and drugging career was about 20 years and there was some fun. There were, you know, party times. There was adventures. I did a lot of traveling. Um, and then later on, you know, I worked as a chef and that industry for me was really easy to be an alcoholic and an addict. Um, it started as I was just coming to work hungover. Then I was drinking at work and then um, it just progressed as it does. It escalates quickly. Um, and in my early 20s, my drinking, originally my drinking was about wanting to be somebody that I wasn't. And uh, in my recovery, I got diagnosed as having bipolar and also major depressive disorder. And I say that because um, it's it was as relieving for me to get that diagnosis and start giving my mental health a chance as it was to admit that I'm an alcoholic and to start the journey of recovery. So when I was younger, I had this narrative that I was self-medicating and I wouldn't, you know, I had, I have, I still have my issues with big pharma, but the idea of taking prescription drugs was just like outrageous. Whereas like I would drink, you know, ancient age or whatever, you know, do some drug baggie that was under the sofa, but big pharma, no way. Um, anyway, I had a self-medicating narrative and then my drinking became about, um, I started to lose people close to me in my life. So I started doing these things I call grief benders. And it would just be like, I didn't want to have any accountability for my drinking. And the the progression was increasing. Um, and then that just stopped working. So in anyway, drinking, drugging, getting obliterated for 20 years. Um, and then in the end, right before feel like I had like a three or four year bottom that was just like slowly dragging out where my mental health was really suffering. Um, I didn't want to go to the doctor because I didn't want to know what was going on with my body. I didn't feel well physically. I had a back injury that just never healed because I was just drinking and dehydrated constantly. Um, and I was, yeah, at the end of my drinking, I was suicidal. I was having panic attacks constantly and I was broke and I started to lose important relationships in my life and um, I was desperate. So I stopped drinking. I white knuckled it. I went through like post-acute withdrawal syndrome, just on my own, desperate and again, like suicidal. And I was just like, I don't get it. This is terrible. What's the point of not drinking if um, I still feel awful and I just didn't have any support and friends had been telling me to um 
you know, go to AA, which I had a lot of aversion to because I thought it was a religious cult. And um, I basically didn't want to admit that I needed help. And then I dragged myself to a meeting, cried in my car for 20 minutes outside. And the key speaker for the first meeting I went to at Rockridge was a chef. And he was like, told my story. It was very, it felt like a higher power guided me there. And it was, um, it was good. But I still needed to thrash against the people that were trying to help me for a little longer because fighting was my my normal mode so um luckily the pandemic happened and I felt I in the first couple weeks of the pandemic I lost every work all the work I had on the horizon for like the coming year in cooking and I had an extremely high level of anxiety I was only going to a meeting a week and I realized that if I didn't take it to the next level that I was either going to relapse or something bad was going to happen. So I cold called a woman I had met at the cookie table at a meeting, asked her to be my sponsor. She's still my sponsor. She has, thank you, Laura. I see that. Perfect. I'm already, what happened? That's what I like. Short drunk log. Um, so I started, she said, you know, you got to get into this harder. If you want this, you got to start working the steps. You need to be going to five meetings a week minimum. And I did everything that she told me to. I um, started going to meetings every day. And Zoom was really a blessing for me because I had a lot of social anxiety. At the end of, you know, when I was drinking, I was the life of the party. I was dancing on the table. I was making a speech she didn't want to hear. I was talking to you in the bathroom line about my deepest trauma, but when I got sober, I wanted to crawl out of my skin and I couldn't, I had a hard time even speaking. So for, you know, the first six months I was in meetings, I was going through a breakup. I was lost all my work. I, um, a friend had died of an OD. It was just all these things were happening. And I just did what my sponsor said, which was call her every time I felt like drinking, which was every day. So I called her every day for an entire year. And I started working the steps aggressively about everything that, you know, the, the, one of the things that really hit me when um, I got into the rooms was a woman said that if you were, if you considered yourself a professional alcoholic and you gave everything that you had to that, to that commitment, you better give all of that and more to your recovery if you want this. So I just treated it like, all right, I would walk in a snowstorm and high heels to a liquor store that was miles away to get my alcohol. So I'm going to go to the meetings. I'm going to anytime I get. I'm, so I started cold calling people. I cried in meetings for pretty much every week for like a month. I see I have three minutes now, so I'm going to wrap it up. Um, Start getting to what it's like now. So my life looks completely different than it did now um, since I've been in recovery. Um, I went back to school, which was something I avoided for, um, I just didn't have time. Drinking was so consuming. Didn't have time to go to school. I'm in my third year studying psychology. Um, I did a pivot with the pandemic and my cooking work went away blessedly because I was very resentful of that work and my body was killing me. So I worked a random job to get into the nine to five business and property management, which was just a stepping stone. And I, about seven months ago, I started working at a perinatal women's residential treatment program. So I work in recovery now. Um, it's very exhausting. It's very rewarding. 
it's very challenging. I had a lot of imposter syndrome at first. Um, anyway, I'm back in school. I work in recovery. I work in mental health, which is I ultimately want to be a therapist. So this is like on my track. Um, I have a loving relationship, like the first healthy. He's right here. His name's Jeff C. Supporting me. Um, I met him in recovery and I was able to build a really strong friendship foundation, which is something I'd never done before. And um, my relationships are better with my family, my colleagues. I'm somebody that I, my friends and people in my life and people I love can depend on me. They can trust me. I show up when I say I'm going to do it. Um my I just got a new sponsee which I'm really excited about working with um I have I go to a women's meeting at seven in the morning which is based in the Bronx on my commute to work so I'm listening to it while I'm on my bike which is total higher power that the zoom works while I'm biking three and a half miles it's amazing but it gives me my it's like my spiritual espresso shop before I go in and do this work thank you Laura um anyway um yeah, it's kind of lately, I'm not going to lie, I've been really, I'm in the grind, I'm back in school and I'm working and I'm overwhelmed. And these are things that I would usually drink about under stress and anxiousness. And I have learned to sit through the discomfort, to ask for help when I need it, to stay connected, to keep protected from the unexpected, which is something our friend Anthony likes to say. Shout out to Anthony. But, um, this, yeah, I'm so grateful to be in recovery and it's really given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. And I thought that that was just something people said so I would keep coming back, but it's proven to be true. Um, and I'm not going to drink no matter what. And I think that's the most important message that, that I'll end with this is that life is going to keep life in like through some of the hardest times I've had, I've been in recovery of just like emotional and spiritual pain but I know that if I keep working this program and showing up for my recovery and putting it first before everything else that I never have to drink again, no matter what, if I don't want to one day at a time. So thank you for asking me to be of service. And um, I hope everyone has a wonderful evening. I'm alcoholic. My name is Robert. Hi, um, Nicole. Thank you for your share. That was great. Um, I really loved how um, it turned around. It's really charming and really heartfelt. I um, really loved that a lot. So, um, you know, I've been sober since November 1st, 1982. That means I'm 40 years sober, which is insane. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I can't even really tell you how I got sober. Like I never said, I mean, I said I quit drinking all the time and then I took a drink to celebrate how well I'd quit drinking. Um, I never said that's it. I'm never going to drink again. I never said I'm done. Um, what happened was I, 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 I went to an AA meeting and um, because my peer counselor at Langley Porter told me that I should go. And uh, he wouldn't readmit me to the mental hospital. And so I felt that if I went to the AA meeting, that I would be readmitted to the mental hospital. That was what I wanted when I went to my first AA meeting. Because something had always been wrong with me. 
was always something wrong with me. I was never a normal kid. I never fit in. I was always different. And if I didn't look different, I felt different. The teacher, the principal, the cops, everybody always saw me. Everybody else got away and I stood there and got handcuffed or beat up or molested or whatever happened. I was always different. And I never wanted to be different. I wanted to just be a regular old kid, just like everybody else. And it seemed like everything hit me harder. People didn't care about stuff. And I cared a lot. Like I stayed awake at night. I was a really anxious, really unhappy, really moody, really creative, really emotional kid. And that's just the worst in a world of kids that are athletic and cute. And they've all got long, thick hair and none of it's curly. And and I don't know, like I was just different from everybody else. And so my brother dared me to finish one of the highballs on the living room floor of one of my parents' parties. And um, I realized that my big brother, who was a thug, like he you know, threw me off the deck, like he wasn't a good guy, he wasn't a good brother. Um, he was scared to drink the drink. And that was really interesting to me because I wanted to do stuff that my brother was scared to do because I wanted to be better than my brother. I wanted to be stronger than my brother. I wanted my brother to be scared of me. And um, I didn't have any words for any of that. But looking back, I believe that's what was going on in my very young, unformed mind. I was nine and I finished the highball. And in fact, I drank all the unfinished drinks in the room, even the beer with the cigarette butt in it. And I ran around the house screaming. I put a towel around my neck. I thought I was Astro Boy. I fell down the stairs. I threw up all over everything. I peed my jammies. It was wonderful. And um, there were no consequences. I woke up the next morning in my bed with um clean pajamas on and nobody said a word and so i found the liquor cabinet and started drinking every day from nine because it solved my problems i didn't know what my problems were i didn't have any language to describe what was wrong there was a lot going on um my dad was molesting me my brother was beating the crap out of me i was getting the crap beat out of me at school I was lying all the time about everything and the cops knew me and I was shoplifting. My life was a mess and alcohol just straightened that all right out. And the way it straightened it out was I stopped doing all that other stuff. I just started drinking. And so very quickly I had it in my lunch at school and it was just something that needed to happen all the time. I couldn't go to sleep without drinking. I would go spend the night at a friend's house and I would dutifully get the chair and climb up and look at the cabinet above the oven. All the houses in San Francisco are virtually the same. And I would look at the cabinet above the oven. And if that family didn't keep their alcohol there, I would cry and say, I missed my mom and make my mom come get me and bring me home so that I could drink myself to sleep. Like drinking was just medicine. It was something that had to happen. And um, that quickly became pills and it quickly became needles and I quickly became homeless. I ran away from home when I was 12 and I never went back. And life on the streets of San Francisco in the 70s was better than life at my house. And there were a lot of really nice people. There were a lot, a lot of really dark people, a lot of really sick people, a lot of, a lot of everything. And um, that was better than what was going on at home. And so um, I got really strung out on smack and I drank all the time, but never, never did I think that alcohol was a problem. For me, the world was the problem. Capitalism was the problem. The cops were the problem. New wave was the problem. People that didn't understand or thought they knew things were the problem. And I was angry about all that stuff. And I knew 
that I was a junkie and I knew and I was sorry, but I wasn't going to stop. But alcohol was a beverage, an innocent, harmless beverage that I always, always had on me. And for me, my idea of a party was unconscious with a little puke in my nose. That was that was when I was drunk enough, when I wasn't here anymore. My ambition was to not be here. And so everything was pretty much shitty all the time until I was unconscious. And then I, I guess I was happy. Um, that was a good party, you know, if I was unconscious for it. And so naturally what happens to children that behave that way and don't live anywhere is all sorts of terrible things happen to me. And I kind of liked some of it. And in the end, I was dead in a bathtub at revived by 911. And um, it was amazing that I survived. And they stood around me on the gurney when I came to in the sort of waylay station between do we take this person to prison or do we put this person in the hospital? And they said, I hear you're a tough guy. And I said, yeah, because I thought I was a pretty tough guy. And they gave me a choice. They said, if you can get up, you can go home. But if you can't get up, you've got to shut up, relax and stay. And I couldn't get my head up off the, the pillow of the bed that I was in, the hospital bed. And so I decided to stay. And so they kept me for as long as they liked. And while I was there, they found out that I wasn't 19. I was only 17. They found out that I wasn't from England. I was American. And in fact, I was from just a few blocks. So it was across town. And um, my family showed up and they sat around me in a circle. And because the, the hospital couldn't keep me because as a minor, they were breaking the law by having me there. And so they gave me another choice. They said, you can, uh, you can take this muni transfer and you can wear the clothes on your back and go back to the street you came from or and this was the big carrot for them they thought i was going to surely going to take this opportunity they said i could go to minnesota as a ward of the state of california and finish high school and they thought that was a pretty great deal and i chose to take the muni card and leave and they couldn't believe it. Like my family, my peer counselor, everybody, they were all there going, you know, they said I was going to die is what they said to me. And I said, no, I'm not. And they said, yeah, you are. And I said, I'm not. And they said, you are too. And I said, why am I going to die? And they said, because you can listen to anything we said while you were here. And I said, yes, I did. And they said, no, you didn't. And I said, I did too. And they said, what did we say? And I thought about it. And honestly, I have no idea what they'd said. So I said, I don't know. And they said, you're going to die. And they had to let me go. They let me go. And uh, I went right back to the street where I came from. I didn't last long. Next thing you know, I was, you know, I was knocking on the door of the mental hospital, begging them to let me back in. And uh, they did not let me back in. They sent me to an AA meeting. And I didn't like the meetings. I went to meetings for almost two years. Every day, because I didn't have anywhere else to go. My life didn't change. Nothing changed. I was trying to listen, but I just didn't like you. You guys were all talking about your feelings, talking about your problems, talking about how great life was, and you're going to the spaghetti feed on Saturday, and how great everything is, and I just absolutely hated you. I thought you knew something I didn't know. I felt different from you. But, you know, once in a while, somebody would say something that I could relate to, something really dark and really painful. And I could really, I was like, yeah, man, me too. But, you know, I always felt like I was worse. I always felt like it was harder for me, that you couldn't possibly understand me. And the only time I ever did or said anything in those days 
was when the topic was gratitude. So one night, about 18 months into me being what I called sober, doing my best to be a member of AA, the speaker was from out of town and he didn't know me. And because I was with the same meetings and uh, he called on me to share. And the topic was gratitude. And I talked about how I wasn't grateful for anything, that being sober was horrible, that this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I cross-talked the meeting. There was a guy at the meeting who was talking about his enormous phone bill that he had that he couldn't afford to pay. They're going to cut his phone off. And he was grateful because at least he had all those people that he could call. And he talked a little bit about drunk dialing people and this phone bill back when he was drinking. And it was great to be sober. What a wonderful problem to have. And I cross-talked that guy. And I said, you're stupid. Like, what the fuck are you doing that with your phone? And there's another guy and another lady, and I was just telling them off in my share. And this guy, Bob, Bob B., who was a big shot in AA in those days, he stood up in the middle of my rant about how ungrateful I was. And he said, hey, have you done your fucking fourth step yet? And it was like, like pin drop quiet in the room. And I said, no. And he said, why don't you sit down, shut up, and don't come back until you've done your fucking fourth step. And that would have been just fine because that guy was a jerk. He dated a really young girl. He drove an El Camino, a ugh, awful guy, right? And um, the meeting applauded. So everybody was really delighted that someone had shut me up. And emotionally, I still didn't really have any words to describe what that felt like, but it, it, it felt the sensation was as if the floor disappeared and I started to fall. I felt somehow that I had done everything I could do to be a member of AA. I went to meetings. I put up with your shit. I was enduring my punishment and um, it wasn't good enough for you guys. And so for me, that was like everybody else, everything else that ever happened to me. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not present enough. I don't know what I'm doing and you don't want me to talk. So like, fuck you. But I didn't quite get ready to leave AA. What I did instead was I thought maybe I would crack the big book I'd never opened it. I had one, but I'd never read it. I thought I'd take a look inside and find out what a fourth step was, maybe do it, and then Bob could be my sponsor and it would be cool. That was the logic I had. So I went back to my plywood box on top of a boat trailer and I got out my little squeeze flashlight and I read that Mr. Brown hates Mrs. Brown and she's taking the house. And I thought, well, that's easy. I hate everybody. Like, So I got a notebook that I'd had as long as I'd had the big book that I'd never written anything in. And I wrote everybody I hated and why. It took me about three days. It's all I had to do. And I stuck it in my homeless armpit and I waited for the next week to go back to that meeting. And I had this idea in my head that Bob would be there and that we'd see each other and he'd get me a cup of coffee and he'd be like, oh, my God, let's not go to the meeting. Let's hear your fourth step. Like, I really thought that it was going to be just amazing. And I got to the meeting and Bob wasn't there. And I was pissed. I've got this notebook in my sweaty, smelly armpit and I can't hear or feel or think. My pulse is just going, don't, don't, don't get in my head like I'm not supposed to be there, like I'm going to get in trouble. I'm starting to panic. And then Bob stoops into the room and sits down right by the door. And I spent the whole meeting going, like looking, like expecting to make eye contact, still expecting that we've got this deal, right? Like he's going to be my sponsor and it's going to be okay. He never looked at me, not once. And after the meeting was over, which I have no idea what happened at, he left. And I was like, 
And so I moved everybody out of the way and I ran outside. He's in his car and he's leaving. So I go up to the window and I pound on the window and he rolls down the window and he sticks his big red face out into the night. And he looks at me like, why are you pounding on my window? And he says, what do you want? And I whoop out my notebook and it goes all over the ground. And he looks down at the ground like, are you going to pick that up? And so I do, I scoop it all up. Now I'm holding this wet armpit smelling wad of paper out in front of this man. And he looks at it and he looks at me and he looks at it again. And he, and he looks at me like, what? And I said, I did my fourth step. And he looks at me and he looks back at the paper and it sort of registered with him. And he goes, good. Now get a sponsor and read it to him. And he rolled up the window and he drove out into the night and I was done. I could taste the fucking vodka. I was finished with you. That was the best I could do to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous was to tolerate you, was to take the money that you gave me, to eat the food that you gave me, and to hate you. That was the best I could do at being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I literally could not do any better, and I was done. I was going to get drunk. I could, I could, I just knew where I was going. I knew what bottle I was buying. I knew how I was going to pay for it. I was done. I was drunk. And then James started to laugh in the doorway behind me. James was the only person in the world that I hated more than Bob. James had long curly hair and a big, huge mustache. And he made a special t-shirt at Shirtik for the meeting every week. And so it would say hugs, not drugs, or, or happiness is free, things like that. He would just go make a shirt to make people laugh and smile at the meeting. And so I hated that guy. I wanted to hurt that guy. So what I thought I'd do is I would knock all of his teeth out of his head and then I'd go get drunk. So somehow between standing in the parking lot, feeling really embarrassed and really angry and done and ready for a drink and over to James where I was going to hit him, like I could feel his teeth folding back over my knuckles. I really could. I started to cry and James wrapped his arms around me and he gave me this long, sweet hug. And then he said, I've seen you suffer for so long. Are you done? And then I couldn't even talk. I was crying so hard because I was done. I didn't really understand what that meant. I didn't know what I'd been doing. But fuck, was I done. I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. Not anymore. And so we walked around the block for like three hours. And we just talked about something I really didn't understand. I would sit in AA meetings and we'd go over the steps or people would talk about the steps. And I would sort of do them in my head. And I would think, yeah, okay, I've done that. Like, you know, admit your power, I'm powerless. Okay, great. Life, no, there's no higher power. That's nonsense. And, you know, I would just do that stuff in my head, but I didn't have a sponsor. I, I didn't live anywhere. I, there was no way to work the steps. I, I'd never read a book. And so we walked around the block and we talked about part two. Step one is that we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I really believed that I was a prophet of rage. I really believed that I was the truth, that people who had homes and cars and debts and obligations and credit cards and families and wives and children, that you were stupid, that you were suckers, that 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 capitalism had roped you in to you know hook, line and sinker, and you were just slaves. And, and I was the smart guy living in a plywood box and I smelled like, you know, a toilet all the time. And like when I said hi to people way into my sobriety, they would go like this because they would whinge and lean away because I didn't have a toothbrush. 
and I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day and drank coffee. So you know what I smelled like when I said hi, you know, and I just took your facial expression is that I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit. Nobody likes me. Look, there's another person whinging at me. It's true. It's true. It's true. And so I wanted what you had and I didn't know it until I was about 18 months sober walking around the block with my sponsor, my first sponsor. And we read the big book with a dictionary. We looked up every stupid word and I, it was really hard. It also felt like punishment, but I was glad to be doing it. James bought me a toothbrush. James bought me a big disposable razor. He showed me how to shave. He taught me how to be a human being. And, and, and that was very, very gracious of him. And we worked the steps together and my life completely changed. I got a job. I got a bank account. I got a phone. I got an apartment. Somebody was willing to actually have sex with me. And so it was like all the things that I wanted came true. And by the time I had four years sober, James was drinking again. And I didn't know what I was going to do. He came to my door with a glass of wine and told me he felt like he was my dad. And I just, my father molested me and raped me until I was eight. And so I didn't want another dad. And so I slammed the door in his face. And I called everybody. I went to meetings. I talked about what was going on. I was so upset. And people just backed away from me. Like, oh God, who's going to sponsor him now? Because I had not been a sweet, quiet newcomer that everybody thought was adorable and really struggling. I was an asshole. I threw chairs at people. I yelled at people that talked about God. I was so angry. I was so confused. I was so scared. I didn't have anything really but anger. That's the only feeling I felt. And I didn't know what to do. And nobody really knew what to do with me either. And, um, so I kind of felt really betrayed by AA and I stopped going to meetings and my life went right back to the way it was before. I was the only one completely misunderstood and I was resentful on top of it. And so I was sitting at a cafe. Um, actually, it used to be called Cafe Roma. I don't know what it's called now, but it's a, it was at college and uh, Durant. No, I don't know right there on the corner by the campus of Cal Berkeley. And um, I was sitting there in a tennis sweater and like a stack of books trying to look cute. And uh, I met these sorority girls and they were going to take me up the hill and we're going to go to a martini party. And I was going to get drunk because that was the only, I needed alcohol. I hadn't been to a meeting. I hadn't talked to a sponsor. I wasn't in the solution. I wasn't praying. I wasn't meditating. wasn't doing anything. And it had been a minute. And so there I was sitting at Cafe Roma, dry, dry, dry. And these women were cute and they wanted to give me alcohol and they wanted to have, I thought, I'm pretty sure we're going to get up there and we're going to drink a martini or two. And then we're all going to have sex together. I'd be the only guy at the party, of course. And this was what was in my mind back here, you know, it was operating. And I went to the corner to get into the cabriolet, right? All the girls are in. They're like, come on, I was going to go. And this guy Costa, who was the manager of Newbridge, I hated this guy. Like one of those guys that's of service all the time and everybody respects. Ew, awful guy, right? Really a lovely, wonderful man. But in my amateurish, childish mind, I couldn't like a guy like that. And so he stopped right in front of me out of nowhere in little tiny Adidas running shorts, covered in sweat, breathing from a run. And he stopped right in front of me. I don't think the man had ever said a word to me in his life. And he said, Rob, what are you doing? 
He didn't say, how are you doing? I'd have lied. You know, he said, what are you doing? And I like looked at the women and I looked at Costa and I, there's no way I could tell a respected member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I was going to get in a cabriolet and go get drunk. I said, nothing. And he said, do you want to go to a meeting? And I said, yeah. And we walked up the hill together and went to a meeting at Newbridge. Like the women were in the cabaret looking, where's he going? Like, and I just went up the hill with, with Costa. And the man that spoke at that meeting told my story, blew my mind, every bit of it, the resistance to recovery, the anger at God, the problem with the father, everything that I'd done, like that I was so ashamed of and really still never completely told anyone. This man told my story and I was just floored. I went right up to him after the meeting and I was like, would you be my sponsor? And he looked at me like I was gross, like I had dog shit on my shoes. And he gave me a card, which I dropped and I picked it up and now I'm holding the card, like showing him that I got it. And he goes, let's see if you can, let's see if you can even call me. And I stood there like trying to get him to like me, you know, for the rest of the time. And he never liked me. He left. And um, I called him as soon as I got home and he did not call me back. And I was fit to be tied. I was furious. That man didn't return my phone call. And so I waited about three days and I talked to somebody and I said, you know, I met a guy and I really loved his share and I called him and he didn't call me back. What should I do? I thought we were going to talk about what a jerk he was. And they said to me, well, why don't you call him again? And I thought, oh, so I did. I, I got brave and I dialed the number again and he answered the phone and we talked and he agreed to sponsor me if I could get to his house at six o'clock in the morning, which was very hard for me in those days. Still, it's pretty hard. And so I went to his house and I went in his house and we started reading the big book and we read the 12 and 12 after that. And we worked those steps just mercilessly. Every word, every phrase, every step, everything that the book asks of us, we did. And um, my life changed again. And um, then he asked me to choose between music, which is my trade, and Alcoholics Anonymous, which I thought was, well, I thought it was bullshit. And so I started asking people what they thought of that proposition. And they said, who's your sponsor? And I told them, and they were like, oh, no, you don't have to choose between music and AA. And I, I, I never felt good, but then I met this man named Silas, whom I'd known my whole sobriety that I loved very, very much. And I, I asked him, and he put his arms around me and hugged me. And he told me, you know, you don't have to make a choice like that. That's uncalled for. That's out of line. It doesn't say anything about that in the big book. That's just the opinion of this man. And I said, what meetings do you go to? And he gave me his meeting schedule. And I followed Silas around for 14 years. I did everything he said. He gave me love. He gave me God. He gave me forgiveness. He gave me Joseph Campbell. He gave me the Bhagavad Gita. He gave me all kinds of amazing ways to look at the spirituality of imperfection and the way we live, the way we recover, the way we heal, the way we forgive in Alcoholics Anonymous that I had never even imagined. And um, then Cy died. And I asked a guy who was at that first meeting I ever went to. I didn't tell you about that meeting, but I got kicked out of it. <laughs> and um, I asked a guy that was actually at that meeting if he'd sponsored me. And he said, sure. And so now today, my sponsor's name is Chip. And he's just a guy. He's a regular guy. Nothing fancy. He's just marvelous. He's just perfect for me. And so... 
what have I done? What have I learned? What is it like? <laughs> I, you know, I really thought for a long time that I'd be able to get out of this, that somehow I'd grow new legs or that somehow I'd grow out of alcoholism or I'd grow up or something would happen. Something would change that I would become like you, like everyone else. And mercifully, I am like you. I am an alcoholic, just like you. If you look at me funny, I will fill in the blank, make up a story. I'll react as if it's true. And I will hate your guts for years. And you had a crummy dinner or you were sleepy or you didn't even see me. I make everything pathologically all about me. It's disgusting. And I can't tell the truth from the false and I'm scared to death. And that's just the basic sort of resting state of the alcoholic mind. Who wouldn't need a drink with a constitution that's assembled in that way? And the miracle is that this basic simple idea, right? Don't drink no matter what. Sobriety first. First, that means if your life is on fire, you bring your burning life to an AA meeting. Sit down and go, oh, my life is on fire and it's embarrassing. You don't want to do it. You're afraid of what people think of you. Fuck them. Bring it home. That's the, Those are the winners in Alcoholics Anonymous. The winners are not the hotshots in the cool leather jackets with the awesome motorcycles that sit in the back row and talk to each other during the meeting. Those are dead people. The people that win are the people that stay sober, work the steps, have a spiritual experience and grow. And I never wanted to be one of those people. <laughs> I never wanted that. But it's such a pleasure to learn that it's possible to not drink no matter what. And so then after that, it's self-reflection. Know yourself. It's this idea that Nietzsche has about good faith. I can talk to you about anything within my character and not get mad at you and not get upset because I know myself. I see myself as best I can. I mean, there's many things that maybe I don't know that I don't know, but there's a lot of me that I've been able to face honestly and squarely. And I actually want to have a conversation with you about self-obsession, about fear, about resentment. Uh, I, I would love to talk to anyone about childhood trauma and how to grow and how to overcome it. That kind of stuff isn't anything I carry around with shame anymore. I have to meet myself as I am today with as much respect and as much love as I can. And I thought I should just automatically do that or that it would go away. I had to learn. And it takes years. So if I don't drink no matter what, I stand a chance at self-reflection. And then prayer and meditation. Prayer and meditation, I didn't want to do anything of the sort. I mean, there was no God. God is a social control designed to oppress the masses. So you work like a dog and you get your reward after you're dead when we don't have to pay you for anything, right? Of course, I understand that nonsense and I'm not falling for it. I did not understand the difference between spirituality and religion. I didn't understand that central to Alcoholics Anonymous is the God idea and the God idea works. I don't care what you believe and I'm not going to tell you what I believe, but I found a solution that works for me and allows me to pray, hold hands. I don't have to change the words. I can be with you with love and gratitude. And that all by itself, just that is a miracle. And so I'm able to do it and I'm able to be one of many, which is amazing. And it turns out humility, humility doesn't mean acting all small and pathetic. That's not humble. That's self-pity, right? Humility means be who you are. 
you know, singers sing, dancers dance, writers write. Um, this someday I'm going to be different than I am is the insane thinking of my alcoholism. That's why I end up alone staring at myself in the, the sort of chrome part of a phone booth, you know, looking at myself, thinking that someday I'll show them or someday it'll be different. Never going to be different until I do it today. And that brings me to the last part of this, self-reflection, prayer meditation, and service. It's unthinkable that I could be of service to another human being. And sometimes no good deed goes unpunished, but that's all right with me. I've punished an awful lot of people for being very kind to me. And so my job today is that whenever anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I make sure the hand of AA is there. It's not always my hand, but if it can be, it is. And that doesn't mean I'm an underbounded, codependent freak that goes to any length and drives up to Sebastopol to talk to some lady about nipping too much liquor. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is that when my brothers and sisters in Alcoholics Anonymous are in pain, I love them. I listen to them. I show up for them. I text them back. I call them back. Um, I've developed friendships and deep relationships that mean the world to me. That um, I don't know... I don't, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to talk about deserving. I don't know if any of us deserve any of this. I think that AA is not for the people that deserve it. AA is not for the people that need it. AA is for the people that do it. AA isn't even this Zoom meeting of 14 people. AA is a book. It's 12 steps. We work the steps, admit defeat, admit that we're not God and turn our will and our lives over to anything. I don't care if it's the ocean or goat boy or a doorknob. I don't care. It almost doesn't matter. It just can't be self. And then we write the truth. We clear the past out. It's like going into the basement or the backyard and digging up tree trunks and grinding them up into some kind of useful compost that we can use again later in another way to help other people. And we admit that to somebody we really trust, and to our higher power. And then I see my part, and I ask myself if I'm willing to have my higher power remove that part. And if I am, I say a simple prayer, and then I make a list of the people I've harmed, which is always bigger than I think it is. And then I go set that all straight. And I paid back half a million dollars, three quarters of a million dollars, took me 12 years, I thought I would never do it. And I did it. It started with embarrassing $5 bills and a whole stack of envelopes every month. And it ended up with checks and stacks of cash, handshakes and hugs. Unbelievable. People are delighted to get their money back. Delighted. They don't, may not want to be friends with you or ever give you a job again or ever see you again, but they love getting their money back. And um, the hard part of that has been being a better brother and being a better son showing up for the people that I've made commitments to. That's been the hard part. The worst one is the first amends my sponsor made me do, James. He said that I had to obey traffic lights and municipal barriers. That has proven to be something that I really still struggle with today. I love to jaywalk. I just want to walk. There's nobody coming. Let's go. And then about halfway across the street, I think of James Fowler. And I go, fuck, because I'm not living my amends. And I want to. And then once that's behind us, what we really have is freedom. 
And then it's what they call the maintenance steps of 10, 11, and 12. And that's what I've already talked to you about. Once we don't drink no matter what and clear away the wreckage of the past, this is really all about self-reflection, prayer, meditation, and service. It doesn't end. Alcoholism doesn't end. It doesn't take a day off. I am a resentment factory. It just doesn't sleep. It's always going. So what I have to do is meet that with dignity and kindness and love, which is very hard to do some days. I mean, none of us are saints. Nobody's perfect. I want to embrace my imperfection today and forgive myself. And the best way I know to do that is to embrace yours and to forgive you. And sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes I can't do it. So I have to pray for you until it happens magically or I forget. And then I see you and I remember and I have to start all over again. But the difference is that we do it. The keys to the kingdom, whatever you want to call it, I got them. I'm so grateful for you for showing me how to shave and brush my teeth, that it wasn't me. It was the way I smelled. I'm so grateful that you showed me simple tools to clear away the wreckage of a life that hadn't even begun so that I could live and make new wreckage that I would have to clear away again later. And um, I mean, if there's any justice in this world, I'd be dead long time ago. Um, but thanks to the system I hated so much, there were emergency workers that showed up and gave me an injection right in my heart and saved me and brought me to a facility that cared for me until I was well enough to hate them and walk away. And then there was this institution, this wonderful Alcoholics Anonymous, that met me with open arms, despite all of my bad behavior, and loved me, loved me deeply, unconditionally, until I could love myself. And that's what we have here. That's what we have to offer. But it won't come get you. You've got to come to us. It works if you work it, we say. And it's true. AA works. It's an ideal for living but you must do it. And um, the best time to do it is when you don't think you need to. The best meeting you'll ever go to is the one you don't think you want to go to or like anymore. Show up. Let's love you too. You can love yourself. Thank you.